Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We got lots of the powerlifting and weightlifting barbell courses coming up where we blend the worlds of lifting and rehab, super awesome, and webinars um, and online courses, lots of good stuff. So check out the website. This podcast can also be found on our website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And reviews are always appreciated. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. He is a certified strength and conditioning specialist and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. This question is relevant to the conversation. What do you think of Star Wars? Me, personally? Yeah, you personally. I don't think I could care any less than I do. Well, we're off about to Star Wars. <laughs> oh, boy. But I love Jedis. Maybe we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay, all right. Decent segue. <laughs> and we've got John Flagg. You're just trying to turn the listeners against me. I know what you're doing. I'm just trying to set the stage for the conversation that follows I, here. Well, let me, okay. It's not my fault that you. I don't. So, so not caring, but also disliking are two different things. Okay, fair, fair. Right. You just, you just. I'm. I'm, You don't care about art. I'm open to change. (laughs) I'm open to change. change. All right. My favorite movie is Terminator Two. All right, James Cameron. Don't, don't at me about art. (laughs) Don't at me. Greatest movie of all time. John Flagg, we are joined by him also, who is an athletic trainer (laughs) and wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, also in White Plains, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He's also the uh, clinical athlete provider and lead instructor for our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification, and he has a fantastic beard. How you doing, John? Doing good. A little fun fact, Star Wars changed the game for special effects, and then so did Terminator 2. So that's that's a good little nerd reference for both of you right there. Star Wars probably did it first. It did. Okay. Probably? Lightsabers, (laughs) Well, there was – yeah, oh, I understand. (laughs) I get it. And Terminator – and the first Terminator wasn't great. Really, it was Terminator 2 that the the effects were ahead of the time, but – we're all, we're also joined. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're also joined by a very special guest, PhD professor of physical therapy, strength and conditioning researcher, powerlifter, and the strength Jedi on social media, Doctor Scotty Butcher. Scotty, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Quinn. Thanks, uh, Jared. Thanks, John. Yeah, super happy to be here. And uh, I do agree with you about Terminator Two being fantastic as a movie i'm not gonna call it my favorite obviously but um it, it's definitely well up there but below star wars I, I appreciate that i appreciate your opinion we're all entitled to be wrong at some point 
in our lives. So we're really, <laughs> that's right. We're really excited to have you. So Scotty teaches exercise phys prescription and rehab to physical therapy students and has published a lot of work related to exercise testing and prescription. And he's going to be doing a clinical athlete webinar for us in May titled, do our rehab clients really need strength training? So before we get into all that, because that's those are the things that we want to talk about. There's a lot there. Can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself and, and what's led to your current research tracks and interests in the field and ultimately to the pinnacle of your career, which is being a guest on the Clinical Athlete Podcast? Yeah. Um, so welcome to the six listeners that probably already know everything about me. So we could just basically shut this down right now and, you know, go home, have a beer. <laughs> well, we've already lost three because of, of what I said yeah. about Star Wars. So. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, no, cool. I yeah, as you say, I'm a I'm a physio um, trained bachelor's, if you can believe it. Like I know you guys are all, uh, you know, hey, we're the doctors from the states, kind of thing. And um, but uh, yeah, I'm no, not. No, yeah. So, so it's you, it's you, Quinn. Anyway, <laughs> I, I I got the real doctorate actually. You it's know, true. Going, it's true. No, it's totally true. It is. The original doctorate is the PhD. It's not the medical doctor, and and uh, that's that's what a lot of people think. Hey, your PhD is not a real doctor, right? You guys watch Friends. That's Ross Geller. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's. Uh, um, <laughs> and you're a doctor of philosophy, so you're like yes. smart and stuff. That's like supposed you're, to be you're like smart. thinking I don't know and that's stuff. True. <laughs> <laughs> I get paid to think. <laughs> Just ching. Um, no, trained tra- as a bachelor in physio. This was, this was about 20 years ago, 21 years ago now. Holy crap. Um, and uh, just uh, started off with, uh, you know, lots of sports background, played uh, played football, wrestling, rugby. Rugby was my main, main sport for about 20 years of my life and stuff. Um, but uh, uh, started off with that, th- thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to be a physio, going to go into sports medicine, travel with all the teams, did none of that shit. Um, I ended up working a little bit in, in orthopedics, decided I wanted to go on and do do some research, did a master's in uh, um, core stability back in the day, if you can believe it, and um, uh, did uh, did some work around that, worked a little bit for f- sports medicine, then basically decided it wasn't for me, so I started looking around for a job, and uh, um, I, I ran across a a job out of uh, the health region here and uh, so talked to a friend of mine said uh, hey do you want to start up the next pulmonary rehab program here in Saskatoon and uh, I said well I mean in my head I'm like fuck no um, I can swear <laughs> this, right? oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so um, so I said fuck no and uh, but then thought about it and thought okay well this might be a great opportunity it was a program program management position and um, so I got to run exercise programs which is you know the bread and butter of what I wanted to do and I thought well, this will be a nice little segue while I figure out what else I want to do fucking fell in love with it actually um, loved the whole idea of working with older adults working with exercise training and then really trying to get around uh, I don't know if you guys work with patients with COPD but trying to get around their ventilatory limitations like they're they're just so so much limited by this one organ in the entire body that does not adapt to training right it's the, the lungs don't adapt to training and they get worse and worse and worse so we got to work around that to try and find good exercise programs and how to do that so so that sort of led my uh, drive towards doing a phd did a phd in pulmonary rehab strength and conditioning combined with the with the intent of saying hey let's try and get some good quality strength and uh, conditioning for pulmonary rehab patients and so the, my research is sort of 
led me down that that path, and that's where it started. Um, so yeah, I've been teaching exercise uh, physiology up here in Canada for uh, about 12 years at the university faculty level now, and um, I, you know, about seven years ago, started really making a transition from our basic ACSM type prescription that, that I would imagine the bulk of PT programs they 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 seem very much like that uh, to starting to think about well you know what we actually need to do a better job in that and bringing in my personal experiences that's about the, the same time that I started doing CrossFit and I started doing uh, um, powerlifting and uh, you know really really just the the looking at how the integration of all that works. Uh, from a rehab perspective, being that rehab clients are still people and, you know, they adapt to training and they adapt to deconditioning, they adapt to everything just like a regular person does. So, uh, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, I guess, the, the, the path that, uh, that I took. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, the next question is going to be almost rhetorical in nature because I, I'm sure that I know the answer, but do strength and conditioning principles belong in physical therapy curriculums? And to what extent, why are, why is it not as prevalent as it is? And what are some things in your experience doing it that we can, that, that some of these other programs can kind of take and, and learn from? Yeah. So. I mean, it is a great question, and I wish it was very straightforward. I wish we could give the answer of absolutely those principles belong. Um, I, I, I think I personally think that. Um, I do think that you know, if we were to take all of the PT programs, let's just just focus on the states and and Canada, all the programs in North America, and just say, okay, all we're going to do is translate or transition all of our programs into a strength and conditioning for rehab focus. It would fail miserably. And that is the reason it's not in there right now. And the reason is that we just don't have the educators that uh, have the experience. Um, and, and honestly, that's why it isn't in there. So does it belong? Absolutely, without question, because the, as I said before, the principles behind strength and conditioning are no different than the principles of training anyone, right? I mean, I know the S&C world is typically dominated by the athletic model. I know that, you know, you get your CSCS, you, you study through the NSCA, you do all of that stuff. It's very, very athletic focused, and I know they're trying to shift away from that. And I know that there's, uh, you know, there's special populations certifications now and things like that. Um, but I think the, and this really speaks to the uh, the title and why the why I'm going to give a webinar on, you know, do we really need to treat or train our our regular population like athletes? Do we really need strength training? Is that um, I mean the, the the short answer is yes, but we're talking about people that are at very, very different stages of their life. So if you were to even take a bunch of people with the CSCS and tell them they're going to train people, that would be an up or train our physical therapy students, that would be an upscale from where we are now in many situations, but it certainly wouldn't be enough. I don't think that it goes into enough detail on the ins and outs of what we would need to do at the very basic level and translate that up to the higher level of training for anyone. Right. So there, you know, we talk about there being a gap between rehab and performance. And I know 
there's lots of opinions of whether it should be there, whether it shouldn't be there, whether it's a continuum, whether it's like two different things or you pass it off to the athletic trainers or the strength coaches or whatever. Once you're done with the rehab, there's tons of different opinions out there. But the reality is, is that when you're dealing with someone in pain or someone that's injured or someone with a chronic disease, there are significant medical issues that you do need to take that step back and regress really far back in many situations. The CSCS guys, you know, just speak as a general group, you know, they're not trained to do that from through a CSCS. PTs are trained to deal at that that small level, but not in most situations trained to take it to the to the next level. And then the strength coaches are are at the at the far end. So what I would love to see and what we've been doing up here is is really having that progression and thinking about how do you actually put that progression together from the very basics of I have a medical need in front of me, a physical therapy or rehab related need in front of me, but I also have a person whose physiology adapts very similarly to an athlete. So how do I take that person from step one all the way to, hey, I can actually function in society without pain or with with optimal function, with optimal mobility, whatever it happens to be for the person. That takes, a, I think, a very unique perspective in order to be able to do that. So to answer your question, I think that if the educators can get that, if the, if the physical therapy educators can have the experience to know how to train, to use the strength and conditioning principles and tie it in, then I think it could be massively successful. And I do think it's needed because I do think we're in many situations, I would say rehab is, and physical therapy can be in some situations, the laughing stock of training. And, and when you see some of the Mickey Mouse stuff that's out there, you know, the silly BS stuff that's, um, that's out there that, you know, you, you hear, you hear st- the starting strength guys and the uh, barbell medicine guys go on quite a bit about, about, you know, the silly BS. There, there's a good reason that that, that label is on there, to be honest, because it's, it's Mickey Mouse stuff. It's silly BS stuff that doesn't actually re- relate to training principles. So short answer it needs to be there, but God, we got to get the educated people in there that have the experience training. Really, that's the that's the thing. How do you get them in there? Good question. I I, I don't know. I mean, I I kind of went at it like I, I look at my situation. I I had that as a background. I went and did a PhD in a completely different area, but still related to it. And then said, Hey, we're we're doing a shitty job of of training our physical therapists to do that, and morphed the curriculum. I, I don't know. I mean, are there are there hundreds of me around? No, there's not. I'm not saying it has to be me. I'm not saying that you know I'm up on my pedestal saying it's the only model or that I'm the be all and end all. I'm sure I've made lots of tons of mistakes over time. But um, do you get PhDs that have the experience? Do you get physios that develop the experience? Do you like I I, I don't know the short answer to it. But the the short answer to anybody trying to teach someone how to teach and coach exercises, you got to do it yourself, right? So how do we get our physical therapy professors that are ingrained in whatever life they're ingrained in to say, hey, why don't you come out to our powerlifting gym or our Oli gym or, or our, you know, our strength gym or our CrossFit gym or whatever? I mean, I, not, not most of them aren't going to do it, right? So I, I don't know. It's I, I don't think it's a quick fix. But the good news is that there's there's people out there that are doing the good work. Like I look at I look at all the stuff that you guys are putting out through uh, Clinical Athlete, um, the the seminars that you guys are doing in weightlifting and and powerlifting, and I look at you know all of the different programs that are starting to morph and and say you know what we're starting to recognize that this is a need and 
they're starting to say, well, hey, we actually have to do something about that, that's where the change starts, right? Um, it change, it, the change starts from the people on the ground floor doing better work and saying to the educators, look, guys, we, we, we need to do a better job of being competitive in the rehab and training market because we're not cutting it. So if you can't do it, if you're the instructor and you can't do it, you bring somebody else in that can do it, right? And then you work together to figure out a good system, right? So so I, I do think it's a blend. I think I think it's got to be a blend of, of people with the experience, which means that if you're a PhD instructor or a DPT instructor, whatever it happens to be, bring somebody in that that knows what they're talking about and that can work with you and say, you know, this is, this is the principles, these are the principles from my side of things, this is what I see. Take where you want to go with it and try and find a way to mesh that together and use those principles to go forward. And um, honestly, that was the best learning experience that I've ever had has been working with a strength coach. I mean, I didn't learn this stuff all by myself. I, I learned it by having a coach who coached me, who taught me how to move, how to, you know, how to actually train, taught me the programming, taught me the, the techniques. Like, that's what you need. You need that, that, that experience behind it. And often it doesn't come from the DPT or MPT uh, curriculum. It comes from the people outside of that that say, hey, I want to help. Let's do a better job of it. And then the, as the students get more and more trained and get better into it, they become the clinical instructors that, that then teach the, stu the students coming through, and then it'll build. Like I, I, and I do see a change. Over the last five years or so, there's been a huge change in, I think, the interest in, uh, um, in strength and conditioning principles in rehab and the experience that students coming through the programs have had. I mean, uh, I don't know how it is for you guys in terms of your experiences, but um, you know, if I were five years ago to ask the number of students coming into the program if they've ever deadlifted, we'd be lucky to have one hand out of say forty or fifty go up. Um, nowadays, it's almost half. So it's I, I do see a change happening. So again, is that the short answer? Is that the the easy answer? I don't think there is one. Um, but ultimately, we got to. I mean, as you guys know, you can't talk about squats and deadlifts and things like that if you don't do squats and deadlifts and things like that. Just to, to chime in in terms of my experience, yeah, I think when I was going through school, I mean, I can't speak from the perspective of a professor who would see multiple cohorts going through over the span of a number of years, but at least in my cohort in school, most of us had or, or were pretty active and most of us probably had squatted or deadlifted and bench pressed in some way, shape or form at some point and kind of knew what it was. Um, and then as a, as a clinical instructor um, working with the university nearest to me, um, I've noticed that there does seem to be a bit of a shift. Now, we've talked about this before where I at least am sampling from a bit of a biased uh, pool in terms of people who um, I tend to follow and tend to follow me. We're probably, we're probably sh sharing some similar philosophies and maybe have some similar backgrounds. And also it ends up being the case where uh, students who have um, sought out my placement, <clears throat> pardon me, especially after a few students in that cohort had been with me, had kind of put the word out and sort of self-selected or self-organized into other people who would probably mesh pretty well with um, having a focus on strength and conditioning or exercise physiology principles. But I do think overall, like you said, that there is a shift happening for the better and people are becoming more familiar or at least recognizing the need to become more familiar with that too, which I think is awesome. Scott, well, go ahead, John. Uh, Scott, I wanted to kind of lob you a softball here when it comes to this subject. What do you do or what do you say when students or other clinicians or even patients you work with express concern about your activity? Because I, I get a lot where, you know, oh, aren't you afraid to, to hurt yourself lifting? Um, and, and obviously we know different, but what, what's your typical take on that? How do you address that? 
Yeah. So first of all, I've never been able to hit a softball. I can hit a hard ball, like anything, <laughs> you throw me a softball. Like I'm, I'm, it's ridiculous. It's almost comical. Like I'll sit in a batting cage with the fricking softballs and miss and miss and miss and miss. Anyway, whatever. I'm going to try not to miss this one. <laughs> How about a hockey puck? You're from Canada. I throw you a hockey puck. <laughs> Do you throw hockey pucks down there? I've, yeah. Maybe I'll slide you one. Throw, throw me a rugby ball or there you go. Oh, there you go. I don't know what I'm talking about. All right. So I'll catch the rugby ball. All right. So shit happens. I mean, we, we said that right at the very beginning when we started talking um, uh, before the podcast, honestly, shit, shit happens. I mean, that's not the answer. <laughs> you can't, you can't go to the detractors and the people that have been in the industry forever and have their, their ways and say, well, shit happens. You get hurt. I mean, you, you get hurt no matter what you do. Right. And, uh, I love the, uh, I love the quote from, uh, Brett Contreras, right. That's like, you know, you think lifting weights is dangerous. Try being weak. You know, that that's, uh, you know, see how dangerous that is or something like that. Definitely butchered that quote, but you know, you get the point is that, you know, like the, the, one of the challenges that, that I find, and, and this is the dilemma is it's very hard to academically know what strength training does. You can say, oh, it improves this and this and this and this, improves mood, improves function, improves your strength, improves your mobility, improves your flexibility, improves your endurance, you know, all these things. And it's very difficult to take the textbook academic version of that and say, well, that doesn't really tell me why that's better than me going for a run every day and that's all I do, right? Because I feel better going, well, not me, I mean, but this is the answer they give is, you know, I feel better going for a run. You know, I feel great going for a run. I'm, you know, I'm healthy. I don't have a lot of problems and you can't tell me that I'm not going to be able to get off my chair 20 years from now because I'm out there running, right? And it's it's such a hard thing to, to get people people to really understand from an academic perspective. I mean, you can throw the research at them and they say, oh, that's not me. Don't worry about it. It's not my clients. I'm doing a great job for my clients. So, I mean, the, the short answer, I think, is that you have to you have to get out and experience it. So the more we get people experiencing what training actually is and what it feels like and what it can do for you, right? The, the resilience and the robustness. And, and you know, this is sort of an area that I'm just starting to break into from a research perspective looking at the concepts around both physical and psychological resilience that comes from training. And I mean, I'm, I know I'm speaking to the choir here, as Jared said, I mean, we're kind of in our own echo chamber, right? You know, of uh, doing, uh, s- preaching what we're, what we're preaching, but it, it makes such a huge difference, you know, in terms of how you feel and how you can go through life and how you cope with things that happen in life, you know, being, being stronger and more capable, uh, with, with, with good quality strength and conditioning. Um, what do I actually say? I mean, all those things are all well and good, but ultimately when you've got someone in front of you, you, you can't just tell them to do it because they're not going to go do it, right? They're, they're going to do what they're going to do. All, all I can do then is, is say, well, you know what? There are lots of ways that you can train. There's lots of ways that you can exercise, and ultimately moving and doing something is better than sitting on the couch doing nothing, and we all know that that's true. But Ultimately, in the end, if you do start pointing to some of the research that says, look, if you do good quality strength training and you compare that with good quality aerobic type training, let's say that's the 
the the general you know comparison that we're making these are the advantages and this is what you get by doing strength and conditioning over doing say basic aerobic training and and i would do that comparison with uh small muscle mass training versus large muscle mass training although the research isn't as clear there it's not as and there hasn't been enough done to really say there's an advantage from a true research perspective of compound lifting and conditioning over uh isolation type lifts and and that if you, if that's all you're going to do but it's uh it's to say that we think there's they're they're uh, they're more effective. You focus on technique and you you focus on gradual progressions so that you you do your best to mitigate whatever risk is out there. But like anything else, shit happens, and sometimes you're going to get hurt, and sometimes that happens, and sometimes you get tweaks, and you know. But the the strength and conditioning principles are. Are, are so the reason they're so fantastic is you can take someone that gets a little tweak and you can say well i can just modify a little bit i don't have to step all the way back to don't do anything right in a lot of cases if you get a tweak doing something minor you gotta step back with strength and condition you get a tweak doing a heavy deadlift if it's a little tweak you know you might just change your volume a bit you might change the intensity a little bit you might change your technique a little bit you might do these subtle little alterations but you still allow the person to continue to train and i think that's one of the uh, the advantages of having the skill from a rehab perspective to assess what people are able to do appropriately that you can then modify that to fit what they're able to do they can still build what you want to build with them and work around the injury that they've got while the wallet heals. Right. So, I mean, again, short answer is shit heals, but you know, who, who wants to hear that? Yeah. And just getting them to understand that that's really kind of a normal part of the process as well. It's not something you always have to run away from. Totally. We had a guest on a few shows ago, Eric Lagoy. He's a physical therapist and he teaches a exercise prescription course in a, in Quinnipiac's DPT program. So it's a similar conversation, and what we talked about was almost the differentiation between strength and conditioning and exercise prescription, almost as a semantics conversation, but it's, it ducktails into my question to you, which is one of maybe the pushbacks to having these things in the physical therapy curriculum is, well, we're, not, we're trained to be generalists. We're not trained to just deal with high-level athletes. We need to be able to deal with all forms of of these populations so you make a distinction though between training for the sport of life and training like an athlete like a competitive athlete can you talk a little bit about the differentiation there because i think that's important when we're talking about having this stuff in healthcare professional curriculum yeah, cool. So, I mean, it, I think it, it it does come down to semantics in a lot of situations, the whole therapeutic exercise terminology, and to say, well, you know, could you even call a deadlift therapeutic exercise? I mean, my answer is yes, absolutely you can. You know, and then I always get, well, how do you how do you know you've got two people deadlifting right beside each other and one's doing therapeutic exercise and one's not? How do you know the difference? Well, you don't. I mean, you know, it's the exercises for the exercise. And and I think that is the, the main thing. But what we're what we're doing as rehab professionals is we're trained to assess. We're trained to assess the individual as it is, as as they are in front of them with whatever concerns they end up having. And to me, that's the main difference between the un 
unhealthy versus the healthy side of things is um, if you want to make that distinction, which I tend not to, but if you do want to make that distinction, it's our it's our ability to assess whatever issues there and have a broader knowledge of um, and skill that we can bring into the grander assessment side of things, not just I'm going to teach you how to deadlift. It's I'm doing this for a very specific therapeutic, therapeutic purpose. In the end, the deadlifts might look exactly the same, but the purpose behind them is different. So, um, so, so that isn't exactly what you asked. So, so getting to thinking about the the idea around, you know, somehow that the non-athlete shouldn't be thought of as you know training like a whole person right and to me that's that's where the distinction comes is like it makes no sense to me right people are people everybody has the same physiology the only difference is we're starting from different points right you know the athlete is someone who's usually starting at a very very high level of training versus the older grandma or grandpa that has never done exercise in their life they still adapt similarly to the athlete, right? The, the difference is they don't have that, they have life experience, which that life experience might have caused a lot of mobility limitations, might have caused a lot of deconditioning, some specifics around that that need to be assessed. And they're also starting at a much lower base. They don't have the general physical prep that an athlete would, right? Like years and years and years of strength and conditioning behind them that the athletes have. So when I make the distinction, when I'm talking about, you know, that, that and it is my opinion that we don't, we shouldn't train general population like older adults. I do a lot of work with older adults nowadays, and you don't train the older adults like you train athletes. I think that's a misnomer. I think that's not the way to, to think about it. What we should be thinking about is is training our everybody like humans, right, and, and with the same physiology. It's just we do have to do a needs analysis. That's one of the key aspects in strength and conditioning that's one of the most important principles, in my opinion, is to actually do an assessment. So the athlete who comes to see you has a base level of strength, conditioning, anaerobic endurance, you know, whatever, right, depending on the sport that they're in. So they have all of that. Now, you might have to do some tweaks. You might have to build here or build there or whatever, depending on what your needs analysis says and the need that they have. The general pop who doesn't have that, they're, they're starting very, very general preparation phase. So you're thinking aerobic base, you're thinking good mobility, you're thinking develop movement patterns, you're thinking, I got to put on a ton of strength before I start thinking about adding on some complex uh, functional sport or life specific type tasks and agility tasks and balance tasks. You know, they just simply need to get fitter generally aerobically and they need to get stronger. And that's where most of the general pop is starting from. So when, when I see, this is what kind of bugs me a lot of times, when I see people that are at that level that don't have a training history, and then you get therapists or trainers or whoever doing these really advanced, say, functional type exercises, right, that they're, they're not even remotely prepared to to tolerate, right? You know, so the risk of injury goes up, the risk of effectiveness actually not being the case goes up, right? This is ineffective training because it doesn't address the needs that they have at the moment, right? So so this is where I think that that general prep stuff is missing. And so it's, I guess it's fairly simple from a distinction perspective, but people don't often think about it, right? They think, oh man, the athlete's doing all this stuff. You know, they're, they're training with, uh, you know, one-legged stance and doing some rotations with, you know, whatever. And why am I doing double-legged squats when I'm a runner? Well, you're a runner who's weak, right? How are you going to 
improve your ability to run on one leg. Well, you got to be able to tolerate squatting on two legs first. You got to build up that strength first before you make it more functional or whatever whatever you have. So, are you <clears throat> sorry? What? How do you like to get a grip on what someone's capacity is? Let's let's talk general population still. But you mentioned aerobic and strength and endurance, this sort of thing. Um, we're probably want to, wanting to to objectify these or quantify these in some way, shape, or form to get a baseline read to figure out what we want to or need to do with them. So, how do you like to go about that? Uh, so, so to, to me, it is the needs assessment. So, um, you do, you do, um, you know, basic, basic subjective, uh, determination of where they're at. Right. You know, so, so this would follow along the, the, and, and what I teach my students is to integrate this in with their subjective exam. Right. So you, you're starting to talk to the person, you know, don't just talk to them about why you do talk to them about why they're there. That's important. That's important from a resilience and a therapeutic alliance perspective for sure. But, you know, you don't just do that. You start talking to them about what's, what is their training history? What, what do they, what have they done? I mean, you can you can make some very distinct assumptions if they have spent 50 years of their life doing no training that they're not going to have a good level of movement competency from a strength or or conditioning perspective. So so you're thinking from the basics. So so starting with the uh, uh, starting with the subjective, going on to the objective type thing. Uh, again, this is just you know what are you going to want them to do? So you start thinking I'm going to want them to squat and deadlift. So I need to know can they hinge? Can they you know can they do a squat? Can they lift overhead? Do they have the mobility? Do they have the the control? So some basic assessments around movement, um, which don't look a lot different than the exercises. I know some people go through FMS and you know all that kind of stuff. I think, in my opinion, for the vast majority of the general pop, it's a waste of time. I would much rather assess them doing a squat and doing a deadlift or, or varying regressions or progressions of that. And so, uh, so, so that's what I do. So, so you assess, can they move, right? You know, do the, can they hinge when you ask them to hinge? It doesn't mean they have to do it day in, day out, but can they do it when you want them to, uh, do they know how to do a deep squat? What's their mobility like? And then, from there, it's a so once you once you look at technique, if you think that you've developed enough technique, then it's well, what can they handle with repetition? So mm-hmm. so trying to develop consistency with that technique. Once they've got consistency, then can they handle loads and that? So for me, the assessment is the training process, right? It's not like I do something very different than what I would do. Um, you know, from, from a general athlete. It's a, you assess them where they're at and um, as part of the process of getting them into a training program. And that would be true of the anaerobic side of things, aerobic sure. side of things as well. Yeah. So the, just put that back at you, the subjective, or as you say, it starts with that, with a good subjective because you're, you're listening or thinking critically about, you know, what they're telling you and then what that tells you about, um, you know, what their, what their training background looks like, whether they're from a formal or whether they have a formal training background or not. I imagine you're also probably looking to hear about what they care about, what their goals are, because from those two things, that's going to tell you what you want them to do as part of that initial assessment, but also from session to session. And then from the subjective and what they care about and from what you've observed, then you're figuring out how, or yeah, what, what do you need to work on? And then drawing from your understanding of exercise physiology or strength and conditioning principles, that's how you're figuring out the nuts and bolts of how you're going to do that. Is that right? I, I would say so. I, I think the, uh, you know, sort of the, the step forward from that is that, you know, in the end, it's, it, you know, I always talk squats and deadlifts and presses and things like that, like most of us do in this, in this echo chamber we're in. And it's, 
you know, it, ultimately, am I going to try and design some functional deadlift that gets at their exact need? No, because that's the deadlift, right? It, the deadlift and the squat does that. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. We know that those are the wheels that work, and they work for time and time and time and time and time again for over a long period of time with lots of different individuals. The difference comes down to what you said about developing that that the goals around their why they're doing what they're doing. So what I do is I frame my discussion around why I'm going to get them to squat and why I'm going to get them to deadlift and why I'm going to get them to press and pull, you know, and that it makes it goal relative. So, so it reframes it from I'm doing a deadlift like an athlete to I need to pick up my grandkids or I need to bend down to pick up, you know, to pick up a laundry basket or to, you know, grab something off the, off the floor, get the, the dishes out of the top cupboard or the bottom cupboard or without, you know, without challenges or concerns or being able to garden and get up and down to, you know, stand back up again once I'm on my knees. You know, it's, it's stuff like yeah. that, that that we know it's it's the, the methodology becomes squats and deadlifts and presses and pulls and variations and so yeah. on. But you don't tell them that. You say, okay, I'm going to train you to develop your ability and your capacity to lift your grandkids or to lift your laundry basket or to whatever the goal that they come at you is and that's where that therapeutic alliance, as we know, is incredibly important because we we know and and I love the uh, I think it was just a couple of days ago uh, from the point of recording this that uh, that uh, you guys had posted online about um, um, understanding about the compliance, right? You know, it's like I, I can't remember the context of the article, but it's like those that do it improve, and those that don't do it, well, they're not going to improve, right? Because they don't do it. So developing the ability to uh, ensure adherence and ensuring uh, compliance to or the alliance around developing that relationship that they're going to trust what you're telling them to do and then having them actually follow through and doing it is the most important aspect of it. But I'm yeah. still going to get people to squat and deadlift. Right. Yeah, you're, you're building that, that buy-in or facilitating that buy-in. And then also if by, by clearly outlining how what you're going to be doing leads the person to what they care about doing, um, it probably gives you an, an out in case that person is particularly averse to, to doing exercise or to doing a squat or a deadlift. If they've had a bad experience or been told those things are bad, you don't have to call them a squat or deadlift. You could just say, let's just practice picking up this laundry basket that happens to have some stuff in it. Totally. Well, the other thing too, because we keep talking about some of the primary lifts, but with this subjective uh, information that you get from the patient, this is, is pretty scalable stuff. Uh, if, if their main goal is to be able to get out of bed without assistance, typically, at least from what I'm picking up and, and what I typically do, is to, let me see your strategy for getting out of bed. Let's see how that looks and see how we can address it, which transfers over to that that alliance and it spills into scotty stole my example that was bouncing around in my head but i get so many people that come in and they want to just be able to pick up and play with their grandkids um and that that's a deadlift uh, whether it's elevated it depends on how tall the kid is um but you know th those things are th these are all scalable uh, activities and, and we can go from a very low load individual to uh, a very high end athlete or a high load uh, individual through this continuum. It's not one population versus the other type thing. It's, it's a much more fluid continuum, at least in my mind. Totally agreed. What are some of the things that you see in your students, Scotty, 
I want to say mistakes, not to make it sound too negative, Nancy, but just, you know, some of the, some of the students who are maybe new to exercise prescription and, and training in general, what are some of the common mistakes that you see made in their early stages of learning these things? Ebola. <laughs> Nebola, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Actually, it, it is misconceptions. Actually, they a lot of them. And and to to be blunt, it's the students that have a little bit of exercise experience. They've gone through say kinesiology or exercise science, but not really have done a lot of strength and conditioning, and not have really done that themselves. They have a lot of preconceived textbook related notions that I find that you know, may or may not be true, or they may be hindering their ability to think further from that. And, and uh, you know, the other thing we do is, uh, you know, I, I, I don't fight against the other instructors. I mean, I, I do, but I but it's, it's all friendly fighting. But, you know, the, the other instructors are telling them things around transverse abdominus multifidus. So, cool, if you want to do that. I mean, the research doesn't necessarily support that, in my opinion. And, you know, I'm probably going to get in shit for talking about this. And, you know, well, you did a on PhD colleagues. on core stability, didn't you? I mean, you would know. <laughs> well, uh, masters, but yeah. Oh, masters. Yeah, that's right. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, right. that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's all good. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> Actually, back in the day, we were talking TA and M multifidus. Like, that was the thing from 12 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, no, the, they, they come in with some preconceived notions and some preconceived experiences where um, they've had physio instructors or other instructors talk to them about movement analysis and assessment. And, you know, oh, yeah, look at that scapula. It's not quite as even, you know, it looks like it's a little bit off and it's not quite moving as, as much, right? And so they one of the things is they get just so focused on the analysis side of things and it gets so specific that you forget about this whole person in front of you, right? And I, I would say that's one of the biggest things is, is being able to say to someone that has a little bit of rotation at their hips when they're going to bend and do a squat to say, you know what? that's probably okay. <laughs> you know, they don't have pain. There's no inherent problems. It might just be a normal anatomical variation. Just let them do it and see what happens as they start training. And usually stuff like that, if it's going to improve, will improve. And if it doesn't, it probably wasn't meant to in the first place, right? So, um, you know, I, I think that's one of the things is, is getting getting caught in paralysis by analysis and and trying to break out of that. So that would be one thing. Um, and then there's, as, you know, as John suggested, there's the preconceived notions around the Nebola and, uh, you know, trying to avoid knees going past the toes and uh, the knee valgus and, you know, scapular winging and... And lumbar flexion, which will be a nice transition into some of the research when we get there. But, you know, talking about all of that stuff and getting caught in all, all of that jazz and being so worried about it that they're not willing to actually put some load on and try it out. And, and I'd say that's the biggest limitation. Uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of other things as well. Um, people come in just like, you know, if students don't have a lot of exercise experience, they come in with movement uh, that maybe doesn't have competency around some of the basic movements and the basic lifts. So you have to start with the basics, but that's what you do with anybody, right? Someone can't hip hinge. You're not really getting them to deadlift per se until they can do so with a good hinge. But that doesn't mean you spend all of your time doing hip hinging. At some point in time, and it might be day one, you start getting them to deadlift to teach them how to hip hinge, right? You know, and so I, I think you know, putting the carrot before the horse and the horse before the carrot, or what, or cart. I'm I'm messing this all. Up. You know what I'm talking about? The carriage, carriage and the horse. Putting the carriage before the I said carrot. God damn it! Uh, <laughs> the carriage before the horse by saying no, we got to train the hip hinge before we deadlift. No, it's the deadlift that trains the hip hinge. You do it all together. So, yeah. So I'd, I'd say those are the biggest things. Do you think some of that comes from? Yeah, especially students when they're learning, 
they think they're in school, so they should be getting all the answers. And there's so much uncertainty with some of the stuff that we're talking about that it's very difficult to kind of cope with that when you feel like you should be getting solid, definitive answer. Oh, yeah. Students want recipe books, right? They want to know if I see this, then I do that. And that means they're going to do this and that'll translate over to this. And that means that. And it just, you know, you're right. It it doesn't happen that way. But but that's to me, that's the nature of any novice in any situation, right? Is that you, you just don't have a roadmap even to think about following. You don't know what the roadmap even looks like, let alone to be able to follow it appropriately, right? So I, I agree with you. I think completely they need to be able to develop that experience. And that's where I'll go back to one of the things I I said earlier is like, you know, if you want to be able to be competent in coaching and teaching someone how to do a sit to stand, you better know how to do that with good technique yourself. With and and when I say good technique, I don't mean perfect. I mean with the process that's appropriate for the person to be able to get the best performance out of that person at that time. Not to prevent injuries, none of that shit. It's it's to it's to enhance performance of their ability to get off the fucking toilet. How often are you seeing the same students across the span of their curriculum? Is, are you are you teaching multiple courses where you get to see the same students a couple times or more? Yeah, so um, yeah, I see them right at the very beginning of their program. Um, I actually teach so I teach two exercise courses, but I also teach their introductory evidence based practice course, and uh, so they get um, they get that. Then they get the basic exercise physiology, which is uh, a, a, we, enough physiology for them to kind of get a sense of how to work on training. But then the rest of it's all on therapeutic training principles, and I've really morphed that side from therapeutic exercise into therapeutic training principles. But then I have the advantage of seeing them about eight months later after they've done three or four clinical placements plus a few other content courses. And I do an advanced exercise phys course, which is, or a prescription course, which is taking the basic foundations of, you know, basic techniques around squats and deadlifts and such and the regressions and progressions and putting them into clinical situations and clinical cases. And so, so yeah, so short answer is, yeah, I, I get to see them a couple times. Are these electives? No, they're, oh, these are, these are, yeah, it's, it's, they have to have them. That's awesome. So I go back to the episode that we did with Eric Lagoy, and he teach he only gets them once. It's an elective, and it's in their third year. With the advantage of what you're talking about, which is what I think would be, you know, maybe the gold quote unquote gold standard if we're going to have this type of thing in the curriculum is you get them early, and then you've got a few different touch points throughout the curriculum, so you can just keep nudging keep nudging, keep nudging. And then, then you see these transitions over the course of their entire, you know, uh, PT student career where you get a chance to like, you can be patient with them at first. You don't have to, you don't feel the pressure to like flip their world upside down and, and really you got, you got time. I think that's really awesome. Cool. The, you know, you talk about being the, the idea of being patient. I actually was a lot, I, I used to be a lot more patient with, let's try and nudge them towards this. Uh, honestly, now, because I, I used to, the, the way the transition worked for me is that first introductory course was very traditional Therex and ACSM type prescription. And then I did the cool strength and conditioning stuff at the end. It was too late by then. Honestly, uh, for the reasons that you just talked about, Quinn. So, so for me, the the advantage of seeing them early is that it it, it you know all of the stuff that we think of as basic therapeutic exercise, it, it's 
I mean, I've taken that and I've said, well, you know what, squats and deadlifts and the patterning around that, that is the basics of therapeutic exercise. And so what I've done is I've uh, taken the the concept of function first, which is uh, stolen from the neurophysio kind of literature and, and uh, the, um, you know, some of the different methodology around uh, neuro, the neurological populations and saying, well, you know what, you assess and you deal with the person at the function level first. And then when you see impairments or inefficiencies or something wrong at the function level, you then back up and go, okay, well, now I have to deal with the impairments. Traditional therapeutic exercises is asked backwards. It's done exactly the opposite of that. It said, okay, well, we have to identify the impairments and then hope that somehow once we fix those impairments, that that's going to translate to better function in the long run. It's the wrong way. It's not the way that it's not the way you do it in strength and conditioning. It's not the way you do it in many situations. But for some reason, we think therapeutic exercises got to go that way. So what I do is I teach them day one. They learn how to squat and deadlift and press and pull, and then they learn how to assess those so that they can identify the faults that may relate to different uh, functional impairments and then and then uh, limitations at the impairment in the isolated level and so then you can work on both at the same time and so so I always call it the um, uh, the two-pronged method of the top down bottom up method where the function first is always your top down you have something you can train always something you assess something you train and then you, you, it might be short range of motion right like you might not be doing a full range of motion squats with someone day one and it might not be loaded but you might be doing some partial squats because that's what they're capable of but then if they've got some knee issues that you want to you know try and fix their knee bola then then you do that as well at the same time right and then eventually as their knee range of motion and control improves their mobility improves their strength improves eventually the squats get deeper they get stronger the pain or whatever is the problem, you know, at the isolated level gets better. Now you're just training, man. Like you're just taking them to the point where it's like, okay, I'm actually getting someone to train. So that that's the advantage of seeing them as early as I've got them is that I can tell them right from day one. No, it's not an option to learn how to squat and deadlift and press. That is the basics of what we do. So it, it's cool. It's it, it's uh, It's been a really neat shift over the last couple of years to be able to see these students come in and go, cool, I want to learn this because it's important. Speaking of how to lift, you've been doing some work with your grad students on mechanics uh, and and yeah. and kinematics seem and kinetics through the lumbar spine and, and these types of things during lifting movements like the deadlift. And I've got a paper in front of me here, the, the title, the effect of setup position on EMG amplitude, lumbar spine kinetics and total force output during maximal isometric conventional stance deadlifts. And we talked a little bit before we started recording the show, Corey Eddington is the lead author and he's a grad student. Yeah, and then you're yeah, on the master, author, student. Yeah. master student, and you're on that author list as well. Yeah. C- can you talk a little bit about this work that you guys are are doing and how you're integrating that into your teachings? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. So, um, I mean, we've known for a few years that um, you know, no matter when when you start putting heavy loads in squats and deadlifts, that no matter what you try to do, you can't keep what whatever neutral is, right? Like, and defining neutral is a whole another bag that we're not going to talk about that I don't want to talk about now. But um, you know, that you can't. You go into flexion. That's that's just the nature of bending forward with some load is that your body goes into flexion even when you don't want it to, or you're trying not to let it go into flexion. So, what we wanted to do is we want to look at, well, what about these situations where you do have differences in the setup position that might relate to differences in their 
their their actual positioning. So maybe re- result in a little bit more lumbar flexion, or you know maybe they reach the end of their hip range motion into flexion. They have to compensate by doing a little bit of lumbar flexion. So kind of thinking the butt wink concept, um, you know things like that. And what does that actually do? And does that matter? Does it what does it do to the lumbar spine mechanics uh, from a kinetics and a kinematics perspective? So the, uh, for those that aren't familiar, the kinematics is more the the what the movement of what happens around the movement and and what does it look like and you know what degrees of change there are whereas the kinetics are much more around like what are the joint reaction forces what's the uh, compression what's the the shear forces the overall torque and so we wanted to say look at the common coaching related uh, um, issues around well do you allow these things or not and so we picked some very common setup points and standard points and so the the article that you talked about Quinn is uh, was our initial pilot work and what we wanted to do with that one was say okay well let's take the deadlift in people that were experienced deadlifting and these were uh, these were both uh, weightlifters and powerlifters and we'd get them to set up their deadlift in more of a powerlifting stance where the bar is closer to the shin right like around navicular kind of idea or and in in conventional stance or more like a weightlifter where you might have a little bit more knee flexion the bar's a little further forward and uh, you know it might be closer to the toes or you know somewhere in that range and so you know that the subtle little differences in the bar position as you guys know you know can make a huge difference up the chain so if you have the bar further forward your shins can come forward a little bit more which means more knee flexion which means less hip flexion potentially and you can keep a relatively straighter lumbar spine versus the more power lifting deadlift where the the bar is a little further back uh, cl- uh closer to the shins the shins can't go uh tip over as much you don't get as many, much knee flexion you need more hip flexion which could if you're near the end of your hip flexion start causing a little bit more flexion at the lumbar spine, right? Just from a setup perspective. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to just assess that at the setup position and look at, um, is there a difference in the EMG? Is there a difference in the shear and compressive forces? Um, and the kinematics, of, do we actually see differences in flexion? And so um, with this initial study, we, we chose to do an isometric pull from each of those positions, which there's some limitations with that for sure. Uh, but we just wanted to look at that setup position and, and get things going. And basically what we found is, yes, the power lifting uh, deadlift or the deadlift where the bar is a little closer, um, it resulted in more lumbar flexion um, compared with the uh, the more weightlifting standard position where you don't have as much lumbar flexion. But from a but we did match the external loads so the external loads were 80 percent of their max deadlift in whichever position that they felt most comfortable so so we matched the loads and the joint reaction forces were almost identical as you'd expect because most of the the lumbar joint reaction force comes to the external load rather than the internal load of shear and compression Um, so it's only about 20 percent of the overall load that happens at the lumbar spine that's because of the internal forces at the spine the rest of it's all due to the external weight right so so sorry other way around 20 percent is the external 80 percent is the internal so um with the uh, with the 80 percent being internal to the joint you would expect to see if there were going to be differences at the lumbar spine we, with a little bits of change in flexion we might see differences in in the shear and compressive forces we actually didn't so the what we found is that the uh, the the moments at the lumbar spine were almost identical and the contribution of shear and compressive forces were almost identical even with differences in flexion so this kind of gets a, a, away from the the idea that if you go into more flexion, you have the potential for more shear force, which um, that's that's Stu McGill's work from about 20 years ago. 
that showed that if you go into full flexion, where you actually get the flexion relaxation phenomenon happening, like beyond 66% of the full flexion, and then you just get them to go into full flexion, then start lifting without actually generating some extensor moment, then yeah, there's a shit ton of shear force that happens with that compared with neutral. But little changes and little changes in the context of actually we're trying to maintain position. We're not just relaxing into flexion. We're still telling them to hold their spine in extension, right? The fact that they do go into flexion is irrelevant. The The point is that they're still holding, they're trying to hold themselves in extension and that's cool. They're, they're generating that extensor moment. And so I think that's why there's no difference and why we're seeing no differences there. So so the, the, the that pilot study basically said that, cool, we give them the same instructions. These are experienced power lifters and weightlifters they know how to control their spinal position and you put them in these different positions and it makes no difference whatsoever on the shear and compressive forces. So then what we wanted to do is, okay, well, of course, we got to check the whole lift now. We've got to see how that impacts the entire lift. And so so we did that um, same two positions for the deadlift and set up and did full lifts. And then um, we went and did squats and did uh, both high bar and low bar positioning for, for the squats, which again would have some similar concepts, right? The high bar squat would have people a little bit more upright, Less hip flexion, more knee flexion, right? Similar to the weightlifting style deadlift, right? And then the low bar squat, the the more powerlifting style squat, or yeah, squat would be much more along the lines of a uh, you know more hip flexion, less knee flexion, and the potential for more rounding and potentially more butt wink or whatever you want to call it. Um, same exact findings in that study as what we found in the isometric pull study. At 80% of their max lift, what we ended up finding is again, sure, compressive forces were absolutely identical, even though there were significant changes in the amount of flexion that happened at the lumbar spine. The cool thing about that research is that we weren't seeing these massive spines blowing out of the the back of people's skins degree of compression and shear forces. They were relatively moderate compression shear forces, but we were getting flexion. We measured the total amount of degrees of uh, lumbar range of motion. We were getting flexion upwards of 70 to 80% of max flexion in these experienced lifters at 80% of their max and they were fine, right? You know, so they this lived. sort of blows away the idea of saying like, oh yeah, you got to keep neutral where you're right at the, you know, right at that perfect position. Now you can go into full flexion as long as, in my opinion, you have that extensor moment, right? So we still had lots of lumbar EMG just firing hard and, you know, maintaining that positioning, but the degree of flexion really didn't matter, which is, the, to me, that's the, one of the coolest things about this research is, is it's basically going against the idea of all the coaches out there like, ah, butt wink, don't let that happen, right? You know, it's so misunderstood, right? You are going to go into flexion. Just don't fall into flexion, right? Like, just don't let yourself clump, right? I think that's where the injury risk comes. But um, anyway, the way we were doing it, yeah, we, we weren't seeing any differences. Well, and that kind of falls into the thought process of each individual lifter having their own optimal and training being a process that you have to be prepared for these things. Uh, and that, that goes as the training program being one of our most modifiable factors. Oh, totally. And, you know, to get at what Quinn was asking is like, how does that impact my teaching? I can say to my, my students, like, you assess the person that's in front of you based on what they can do. If they have some flexion, don't worry about it. Can they control it? Right. Can they can they actually go into more flexion and then know how to come back out? Right. 
that's that to me is important. Um, you know, like you should have that proprioception and kinesthetic awareness to know that you're going into flexion and to come back out and to train your brain to not have to think about that and and to just be able to go in and train. But that's but part of that is the individual assessment where you know, like John said earlier, you might be getting them to deadlift from blocks because they don't have control from the bottom at the beginning. Right, and you might be deadlifting them heavy from blocks, but then you might be doing some control work from the bottom, right? Top down, bottom up type kind of concept. So, so there's tons of different options that you have, but you can't be so scared of thinking, "Oh my God, they're not in the exact perfect position that I want them in." Uh, and nothing's perfect. Just make it look good. Keep some basic training principles in mind if you know them through your experience and, and what have you, and and get your students training and get your your clients out there training for sure. I love that. There's a mountain of evidence now with those two studies. I think the point of don't be worried about keeping them in a certain position and also the point of even if you were worried about it, you can't avoid it. It's It happens regardless of if you want it to happen or not and pretty high degrees too. So these are things that we are not necessarily seeing. I think when people, even like you're looking at somebody's position, it's like, oh, it looks pretty good. I can see some movement there, but when you're really measuring it, you're like, holy crap, that was way more actual movement than I thought. So it just, it just kind of confirms what we're talking about. It, it, things are so variable. You know, it really comes down to, like John said, is, is preparation. And this, this idea of like uh, Scott Morrison will always say sloptimal um, and, and satisficing the students at first being unsure or uncomfortable with uncertainty, I think is hopefully a quality that can start to be drilled into them as being okay with uncertainty as this type of information is put to them, which is why research can really, really help in this. And then it's an, even with a pilot study, where are you guys going to go from here with that stuff? Yeah. So, so lots of direction. I mean, the the challenge is finding the uh, the challenge is finding the students that that want to learn learn this, and it's coming. Like, there's there's lots of interest in it, and and that. So, um, the idea behind it is now to take it into uh, lots of different other movements. First of all, so so I mean, squats and deadlifts are one thing, but um, you know, start thinking about well, what about the bench press? Like, whoo, you know, do you arch in the bench press? Oh my God, what is that? You know, you gonna blow out your spine? So look at that extension, right? With your facets are doomed. You know, all that kind of jazz, right? You know, but but looking at how that then impacts, you know, uh, as we know, the art, the purpose of the arch. I mean, if you talk about the non-sport purpose of the arch, which I get my non-sport athletes to arch to some degree, is is about more about scapula and shoulder position than it is about the spine, right? It's about getting the, the shoulder in the right position. I see John agrees with me there. So it's it's about getting the scapula in a position where it can be fixated in in such a um, a functional related position that it supports the health of the shoulder and the ability of the performance of the glenohumeral joint to be able to push heavy loads but we haven't seen that in research nobody has showed that in research right so so i want to i want to go down that path the other thing is to start looking at the butt wink in and of itself so what we did in uh, Corey eatington's work is um we had uh, individuals just go to powerlifting depth so we 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 coached them down and assess their depth just to just to below parallel um, on ipf this standard yeah ipf SPF. Yes. um Sorry, I, what, what PF? 
No, IPF. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, so um, yeah, IPF standard. And then, uh, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to say, okay, well, let's let's actually take them further than that because not everybody is going to see a visible butt wink at IPF depth, right? But you get people to drop to the floor and everybody's going to see something that you would call a visible butt wink, right? So we don't know about that extreme yet. So we don't know like what, what happens. So so we looked at some subtle changes. What happens when you see these massive visu- vi- visual changes at the bottom, which uh, I don't think we're going to see anything different, but again, that hasn't been assessed. We haven't looked at the shear and compressive forces at the bottom of a, a, of a full squat under load, um, relatively heavy load um, and allowing them to to have this tail tuck under and see what that all does and the, the other thing is that the theories behind the butt wink are are, are, are very you know, very varied out there. I mean, it used to be all the hamstrings called the butt wink, which we know is completely bogus. Um, the hamstrings have zero to do with the butt wink. It's it's mostly to do with either control or it's your hip anatomy, right? So the the theory, of course, is that you when you go to squat, you squat down, your hips go into enough flexion that they've reached the end range of their anatomical range of flexion, and the only way you can drop your butt lower is by tilting the pelvis backwards and having lumbar flexion. That's the theory. But some of our evidence that we saw in Corey's study and these highly trained individuals that supposedly know how to control their spine is that they were actually, A, getting lumbar flexion prior to the end point, right? It was actually progressive throughout the entire eccentric portion of the squat. But it also didn't happen at the point where their hips were at the end range of hips hip flexion. So we assessed their hip flexion range of motion in the in the dynamic position, and then um, compared that with what their maximums were, and they weren't getting maximum hip flexion, right? So they were tucking under and starting to get this posterior tilt and pelvic um, uh, lumbar spine flexion prior to the end range of hip flexion. So it, maybe it's not an insufficiency from the actual anatomical range of motion perspective and maybe it's more maybe i don't know maybe something else maybe it's something control and then do we care right so so that's kind of the next step is to is to start looking at these things in a little bit more detail and try and break some of the notions that we the coaches often have in in their heads that oh yeah i know butt wink is only because you reach the end range of hip flexion range of motion and you tuck under and then you get flexion and that's bad right like so these are the sort of things that we want to try and break out of and, and have some evidence to support the idea that you know what people do this day in day out under heavy loads and they don't get hurt. It's not inherent that this is a dangerous thing. And we want to just have some evidence to start supporting that. So I guess that's next couple steps. Now, I want to head off all the haters in the comments. You're not saying that technique does not matter. That is not at all what I said. But the small minutia that people focus on is probably not as big of a deal as they make it out to be. Correct. I would say that's absolutely correct. Um, I think that, I mean, you, and ultimately you have to, this this is to me is where from a rehab perspective, our assessment ability and, and not just our physical visual assessment, but the ability to like look at an individual in front of you and say, okay, I see this amount of hip flexion versus or lumbar flexion versus this amount and make the decision, does it matter? 
right? Because I think the vast majority of people, we put too much emphasis and say, yeah, it matters, when in fact it probably doesn't. So, no, I'm not saying lift with shit technique. I'm not saying just, you know, throw technique out the window. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, like, if someone gets a little bit of lumbar flexion, but, you know, it still looks okay, they're still under control, don't don't pick on that if it's not a problem, right? But if it is a problem, then you start picking on it, right? So don't don't create the problems where where you don't have them is basically the point. There's more evidence to corroborate what you're saying too. If if people want it, you know, I, Andrew Vygotsky did a study on the Good Morning and found the same similar findings, lumbar flexion at end range of the Good Morning exercise. Uh, Stuart McGill did a study on the kettlebell swing, even when cueing the participants to stay in spinal extension saw upwards of 26 degrees of lumbar flexion at the bottom of the kettlebell swing. And then there was one on the squat in 2010. While you're talking, I pulled this up. It's McKean. McKean is the lead author. And they found lumbar flexion after the participant unracked the bar with like 50% of the one rep max, just walking the bar out of the rack, their lumbar spine went into flexion automatically before they even started squatting. So they're just, you know, more of, of what you're talking about. I usually, with the question of how much is too much, because it's, it's a question that's really hard to answer, you know, that doesn't matter. I usually spin it from a performance perspective. If, if their spinal position is such that they're not leveraged to perform the task, then we'll change something. But the injury risk conversation gets real muddy because people get hurt. You know, we talk about preparation all the time. People get hurt in a myriad of positions, but they also don't get hurt in a myriad of positions. And it, it, it there's a whole lot more factors when it comes to that stuff. I like to keep it simple and say, if it's affecting your performance and let's, let's intervene. But usually that takes care of the, the biomechanical mechanism of injury to a large extent anyway. So you kind of, you know, you get it on both ends there. Yeah, I totally agree, man. Like, I think I that that's one of the biggest things that I think I've learned over this last uh, you know seven ish years of of really delving into how this all works from a clinical perspective is is that I've seen the same, I would say exactly the same number, you know, if I were to actually count it out, the, the same number of people that got hurt with what I would call fantastic technique from a textbook perspective or from my coach's eye perspective than they did from positions that were say outside of that you're gonna you you, you train you're gonna get hurt right you you freaking walk across the street and sprain your ankle on a rock or you know or or whatever like shit happens right and this is goes back to that is is there's always a chance that something happened but you know are you going to be the guy sitting on the couch waiting for your heart to explode from heart failure or are you going to be the guy going in the gym and risk maybe getting some tweak in your back but developing the strength and conditioning that's supportive of your life throughout your entire life. Like which guy do you want to be, right? You're going to get hurt doing either one. I'm going to be the guy in the gym training and getting hurt in the gym. And you know what? I'm happy with that because I'm out training and and, and trying to improve myself. I'm not going to put myself in a bubble at home and try and pretend that nothing's going to happen. Right. So yeah, shit, man. No, just like get out. That's the thing. Get out and train and don't worry about the minutia, about the positioning. And when you do worry about it, I agree completely that it's a performance related issue, right? Like, can you lift more weight in what would be considered a safe manner with your positioning different in position A or B? Well, if it's different and if it's better in position A, then you probably should lift in position A, right? It doesn't matter about injury risk. It's not about injury risk. Injuries are going to happen. 
Scotty, talk to us a little bit about what you're doing with the Strength Jedi. Yeah, so so I've got, got a couple things, a uh, couple things going on. So Strength Jedi is, uh, I guess it's my online presence, right? So so I'm, I'm doing some blogging and um, I've got uh, got a few things about. It, it's mostly about education, right? It's about trying to get the good word out. It's about trying to uh, trying to get uh, the message around what what good quality training looks like from a rehab and a uh, seniors uh, perspective and and uh, trying to do that kind of thing. It's um, it's about it, it for me. It's about educating not only the public but it's also educating the uh, the practitioners, uh, excuse me, that are that are out there. So the so I've just just recently started as the the strength jedi i've been doing lots of blogging for other people but i never really had a home base and so this is sort of my my home base that i started up at the beginning of 2019 um the the intent there is really uh to to just try and get out to the masses and and get some of this information on be another platform that can help people help people learn i i don't plan on doing anything for you know for paid kind of thing i'm not you know i have a i have a job that pays me well i'm not looking to make money with this this is this is about education for me um it uh, it links in with some of the things that I'm doing in uh, not only my my uh, university job, but uh, I do some consulting at the uh, at the strength and conditioning facility in Saskatoon, uh, Synergy Strength and Conditioning. And so uh, my uh, um, partner in crime over there, his name is Chad Benko. And so we've done a lot of videos together through our uh, YouTube channel as Strength Rebels, um, another Star Wars reference, of course. And um, not not him. He's he's the same as you, Quinn. He's like he's like, no, nah, I don't know. I don't really care. I, I I haven't really seen Star Wars. I don't. It's not that I don't like it. I just I just don't really care, right? So he's the same thing. So, but I convinced him that you got to have strength rebels, and then I'm the strength Jedi, right? Because it's got to be about Star Wars. What's he? So <laughs> he, he doesn't watch anything. No, he doesn't okay. watch anything. He's he's a bit of a geek that way. He's a loser. He calls me the, the geek because I'm like, well, you can see in the background, like the, oh, yeah. I don't know if you can see that's Game of Thrones back there. I'm looking forward to the final season, and you know, and so I'm always pulling shit like that into the work that I'm doing. And he's like, he's like, man, you're such a nerd, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> show your personality man yeah yeah exactly so um but anyway no it's it's about education and and so yeah i'm trying to trying to just get the good word out and do it the best way that i can try and help as many people as i can i don't know that's pretty uh uh pretty generalized but uh, that's i guess that's the plan oh it's awesome where can people find you and and find all of those so, things yeah, yeah. So easiest way is uh, social media, um, uh, particularly Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. The Strength Jedi. So it's at the Strength Jedi. Um, you can find me on thestrengthjedi.com uh, is my uh, website. I'm happy to accept friend requests on Facebook. Do networking that way. Um, got Strength Jedi as a uh, as a page. That kind of thing. So best best bet is uh, social media. Well, this has been awesome, and. Would you be willing to come back on the show sometime when you when you guys are um, pushing out some of this new work that you were talking about and, uh, oh, and discuss yeah. that with us? Cool. Yeah, totally, man. No, this is this has been fun. Uh, you know, I, I follow all the work that, you, that the three of you guys are doing as well, and it's uh, it's some pretty fantastic shit. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure I'm sure we'll uh, we'll be touching base. But it's um, yeah, th- th- this is always fun stuff. You, you know, the work that you guys are doing is uh, is amazing to try and get uh, get the the right message out. So I'm happy to support it. Well, we appreciate that. Yeah, man. we do. Thank you yep. Yep. very much. What you got a webinar coming up? What's the webinar about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the webinar for you guys. Yeah, it's um, so I'm going to talk about um, uh, I'm going to talk about what or what is the need or is there a need to strength train all of our clients in rehab and, and that that isn't the exact title but it's, that's the intent. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into the research around the the benefits that 
adding extra strength onto a rehab program gives. And there's actually a fair amount out there. You wouldn't think there would be, but there's a fair amount of research out there that that goes beyond the, sort of the basic rehab stuff, right? And to say that, you know what, if you do an extra two years of strength training, you can actually put on more adaptation at the tissue level and you can have better outcomes. And, you know, a little bit on the um, um, the the acute side of things not mattering as much as we think it does. And, you know, about having the training process itself be the end goal. So I, I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be pretty cool. Very cool. And that's May 1st too, for everyone who's looking forward to that. And I just want to say right now on your, on your Skype, on my end, at least your background is blurred, but you are crystal clear. And it looks yeah. like you're behind a green or you're in front of a green screen or something like that. It's pretty awesome. It's like that, that, that new was on purpose. I no, it, looks, going on, it looks amazing. So Jared and John, do you have an iPhone, Scotty? Yeah. Yeah, of course you do. Because Jared and John yeah, don't. Of but in yeah. the iPhone, one of the yeah. the portrait uh, mode in the camera where the background fades and it's just you like crystal yeah. clear. That's exactly what you look like right now. It's pretty cool. So John and Jared, here's your kind of glimpse at what having an iPhone would be like. Pretty cool. Keep, keep it. <laughs> okay. Oh okay. So, so you can't okay. tell. I'm pointing back here at Game of Thrones. We, it, it only happened. Freaking... No, it only happened oh. like the last five minutes. I don't know why. Oh, no. yeah. So no, you, I, you did see the Khaleesi and yep. you know, and uh, and there's Luke over there too. I've got some Star Wars up there too. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks so much, man. This was really, really awesome. Really enjoyed this conversation. I think a lot of people are going to get something out of it. I think the students. That, that listen to the show are really going to appreciate this as well. So thank you. We'll have to get you on again and really looking forward to the webinar. Awesome. Thanks very much for the invite guys. And like I said, happy to, happy to be on. Yeah, man. Great talking to you.